Welcome to The Lead, a podcast about how to get ahead in the media industry from the people who did. I'm Caroline Odom. On this final episode of season nine, I speak with Ian Urbina, an awarded investigative reporter and founder of the Outlaw Ocean Project, a nonprofit journalism outlet sharing stories of lawlessness at sea from around the world. Ian was slated to give the 2020 McGill Lecture, an annual gathering to honor the late editor Ralph McGill and celebrate journalistic courage. Although that lecture did not occur because of the COVID-19 pandemic, I'm thankful that we still get to hear from Ian on this episode. Ian and I discuss his career as an investigative reporter at the New York Times, pursuing Outlaw Ocean stories, and now operating the Outlaw Ocean Project as its own entity. We also talk about innovative storytelling through the Outlaw Ocean Music Project and the topic of courage. But first, a word from our sponsor. This episode is produced by the Cox Institute for Journalism Innovation, Management, and Leadership at the University of Georgia's Grady College. To learn more, go to grady.uga.edu slash coxinstitute. Additionally, in response to the COVID-19 pandemic, this episode of The Lead was recorded over Zoom. Thank you in advance for your continued patience with audio imperfections. Now, here's The Lead. Good morning, Ian. Welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks. I'm really excited about this conversation. Just to give people a little bit of background, Charlotte, producer of The Lead, works with Ian on the Outlaw Ocean Project. So I've been hearing a lot about his work and think that, um, think that Ian, you have a lot to share with us and just a really interesting perspective from the realm of journalism. So just to jump right in, you have degrees in history and cultural anthropology. So I'm just curious, how did you go from those subjects to eventually joining the New York Times in 2003? And, you know, did you ever imagine yourself taking that path? Yeah, I mean, I, um, I didn't do journalism in high school. But as an undergrad, I worked for as a researcher for a investigative reporter, and that whetted my appetite. Then I headed off to a doctoral program and um, was sort of losing steam on my dissertation. I worked on Cuba and was eager to, you know, sort of take a break from it and took uh, some time off and went and worked on a ship. And that sort of gave me an initial interest in seafaring world. And then as I made my way through the dissertation, I kind of realized I wanted to do a line of work, um, a profession that was intellectually fulfilling, um, but I also liked writing and writing things that a lot of people might read. And for those reasons, I started dabbling more in journalism, magazine journalism. I kind of caught the bug. So within a year of doing freelance work of that sort, I just started applying to you know, institutions all over and was sort of uh, quite frankly surprised that the New York Times responded. And, you know, after many rounds of interviews, I got a job. Awesome. I always think it's so interesting to hear about, you know, people who never, never really envisioned themselves in journalism, but just a passion or an interest takes them there. Um, which kind of leads me into my next question. I was doing some reading about the Outlaw Ocean Project and thought it was really interesting. You know, I mentioned that you joined the New York Times in 2003, but I read somewhere that you were kind of pitching this idea for the Outlaw Ocean for over a decade before you were able to get started in 2014. And since then, your reporting is taking you all around the world, 
just exploring all these different stories about crimes that are, you know, taking place in international waters and the stories of those people. And so my question is, how did you discover those stories and what made them so compelling? You know, why did you want to pursue them? Yeah, I mean, when I went into journalism, I always from day one had the dream of being uh, Seymour Hirsch, you know, um, famous investigative reporter um, who did largely international work and sort of specialized in stories that serve the public. And that's what I wanted to do. But at the times, um, you needed to kind of pay your dues. And so I had to um, go be a beat reporter for many years before I knew what I was doing, frankly. And so I did that for the first decade, but always expressed my interest that I wanted to do international investigative. And eventually I was allowed to do more long form investigative stuff. Finally, I found an editor. Investigative has a couple of core mandates. One is sort of unpacking in an explanatory and, and discovery sort of way. Ideally, you're focused on things that need to be fixed. And to some degree, you're, 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 you're given the luxury of time. You don't have to turn around stories every 48 hours, but the expectation of virgin snow, if you will, that you know, you're supposed to find new things that other people didn't realize. Um, and that's a high bar, but I knew that in my core, if the Times or editors would only trust me and cut, you know, let me off the leash and find and snow, if you will, and and um, uh, things that people didn't even realize to exist, and much quite worrisome, you know, negative human rights, labor, environmental abuses. But it's expensive, it's time-consuming, it's dangerous, and and so for all those reasons, editors were skeptical at the outset until I got to the right one. Kind of a similar question I have, but looking less at the the perspective of pitching it to the newspaper and more at the, you know, the side of convincing people to let you join them and report on their lives and report on these stories. When you find something that you want to pursue, a lead, how do you, how do you convince someone that you're credible and can join them? There's no magic potion, I would say. I do think over the years I've learned through trial and error that some, uh, you know, some tools. I do think that number one, uh, being extremely forthcoming and transparent with people about what you're doing wins the, a certain amount of credibility. And again, bear in mind that everything I say has at its core the assumption that you have time, right? If you're rushed because you're on a deadline and you've got to unpack something really fast, then a lot of these tools don't work. But the, the, the benefit of having time and to develop a relationship with an individual and to come back at them and to not push questions too soon and to sort of over time show them that you're fairly fluent in their world, even of their perspective. In fact, you can even put to words things that they've thought and haven't been able to, on their own accord, perhaps verbalize. Doing those things on a over a sustained period wins you a lot of credibility. And it's not to say you have to agree with the person, but having a certain fluency in their experience and their possible perspective carries you a long way. Um, I think also just being really humble about how much you don't know and almost sort of treating the person not in some performative or condescending kind of way, but genuinely conveying to them that there are a lot of things you don't understand about their world, their work, their life, their perspective, and kind of just are hoping they will explain it to you because you think it's worthy for the public at large to 
hear and learn that and you want to be a translator, you know, a bridge builder. You size up people. I think any good reporter is has to have a lot of emotional intelligence and have a really keen ability to read people and and take the subtle cues and and course adjust accordingly. And if you assume, if you're good at that towards someone, often it raises the bar and they start being good at that towards you. And if you're an open book and you're really clear and honest about what you're trying to do, then they size you up and think, okay, this guy seems like a fairly straight shooter. So I'll let him on my ship or I'll sit down for coffee with him or what have you. Awesome. Great answer. And I definitely think those that process of building credibility is so important, especially now. I want to talk about the Outlaw Ocean Project now. You're now on contract for the New York Times while pursuing reporting on ocean issues full-time for the Outlaw Ocean Project, which is a nonprofit journalism organization that you founded. So what prompted the decision to incorporate your ocean reporting into its own journalistic entity? Yeah, it's a great question, or at least one I love. Um, I, you know, I spent 17 years at the Times on staff, and it was the only place I ever worked. And I did a lot of, I did two years of freelance magazine writing before I joined the Times. But my home institutionally has always been the Times, and it was amazing. It was kind of like a teaching hospital where I learned how to do everything you do, you know, in a newspaper, or in this case, metaphorically, a hospital. But with this project, with the Outlaw Ocean project, I took the first two years of the reporting ran in the paper, and then I took a two-year leave from the paper to go back to see with Fabio Nascimento, this Brazilian photographer, to produce the book. And then when I went back to the paper after producing the book, I spent a year doing a series called American Ammo about ammunition, you know, about bullets globally, the commerce of artillery and weapons, but but specifically ammo. And um, I just couldn't put the outlaw ocean stuff down. You know, there were all these stories that I had wanted to get to, I didn't get to, and stories that I thought might be there if I just had the time to look into them. And and the thing that drew me to the topic was a sort of inverse relationship between, on the one hand, the urgency and and richness of the stories that are out there. You know, 56 million people work at sea. It's a vibrant world that happens to cover two-thirds of the planet, and yet there's very little journalism coming out there. So the urgency and diversity, the stories on the one hand and the, and the lack of narrative reporting on the other hand, that gap really haunted me. And I thought, you know, someone needs to be doing this and I quite like it. So, and so I, I knew that I couldn't continue doing these stories at the times because they want to move their investigative folks around. Quite frankly, a lot of attention was shifting towards the Trump administration. And I, I didn't want to, I'd done political investigative before and it felt like a crowded field, worthy, worthy, no doubt, but and a target rich field, I'll say, but I just didn't really want to do that. Uh, so I also kind of wanted to experiment with alternate methods of distribution. The, the kinds of stories I did at Times and what, they, what the paper taught me to do, I wouldn't change at all. I, I really, the core writing, reporting, et cetera, I, I didn't hunger to adjust. But what you do with the reporting, you know, typically we would spend six months, nine months, 15 months on a single story. You put it out. It lives for a week. It gets a lot of attention. It's a huge platform. But then you walk away. And I didn't like that. I thought if you're going to spend that much time and you're really trying to drive social change and do a public service, then you probably want to give that reporting a longer lifespan, maybe different iterations. And so I thought I'd like to sort of experiment. If I leave the Times, I'd like to do the core reporting, but then experiment in alternate ways to convert the reporting into other things, to give it new life. 
And so I knew I wasn't going to be able to do that at the times either. And so I decided to sort of follow in a ProPublica model or Marshall Project model, you know, a small, agile, specialized, boutique journalistic team for which UGA graduate Charlotte Norsworthy is a key player. And we produce the stories, we put them in, you know, tier one news outlets, the New York Times, Washington Post, New Yorker, BBC, Der Spiegel. But then we also kind of do a bunch of other things with them, convert them into music, podcasts, games, animation series, theater production, all sorts of different other things. So you mentioned music, and that leads really well into what I wanted to ask next, which is about the Outlaw Ocean Music Project, which is just this fantastic example of truly innovative storytelling. So would you mind explaining what that is to our listeners and then tell us about what gave you that idea to tell these stories through music? Yeah, I mean, so in that narrative, I just long-windedly ran down, you know, that is sort of exhibit one of alternate distribution, right? So you take a core body of intellectual property, in this case, the book, right? A bunch of 15 chapters worth of reporting and stories and rich texture and tension and characters and setting and urgent issues, right? And the book could have come out, been read, get on the shelf, and that's it. But in this case, I thought, well, what if we did something that gave it a second life? And the second life would be something that actually we started about a year ago, which was we would approach musicians around the world. These are musicians of lots of different genres, so classical and hip hop and electronic and ambient and, and uh, genres I can't even cite. And we would say, would you consider reading this book or at least parts of it, seeing which characters or issues or chapters speak to you, then tap into this sound archive that we created. And the sound archive is a bifurcated sort of uh, body of samples, essentially. And one half is ambient sounds. And these are all sounds that directly come from field recordings. And the ambient stuff is textured sounds. Think of it almost like in a culinary metaphor as, you know, these are seasonings, right? They, they, they don't stand on their own, but they add a certain spice to the meal. And so this ambient sounds might be machine gun fire in Somalia or chanting Cambodian deckhands on the South China Sea. These are rhythmic things that are interesting and can be combined into music uh, with the right musician. And then the other section of sounds are prose. And those are things with words. So that's Secretary of State John Kerry at the UN talking about Lang Long, one of the characters that we reported on the series, a guy who was shackled, a, a sea slave. You know, it's interviews with um, George Mandawa, a stowaway who was left on a raft at sea. It, th these are really interesting things that have words and for which you can pull out interesting little tidbits. Now you hand the, this over to a musician. Musician makes an album, usually five track album in their own style, interpreted as they will. And then we put out the album and we thought it would be like five or 10 artists. It's now over 480 countries and, you know, combined listenership of 90 million. And the, the cool thing, aside from just the weird creative experiment that it represents sort of journalistically, we're taking these stories and now channeling them through these musicians and landing them on platforms like Spotify, Pandora, Amazon play YouTube, where, this kind of journalism doesn't normally live. And people, a lot of people, quite especially young people, 
consume a lot of stuff on these platforms. These are their watering hole, you know, and it's not the New York Times website. And so now we're bringing this kind of stuff. We pair the music with video footage from the stories. And it's almost like a gateway drug, if you will. It's an on-ramp, which um, entices folks who are like, oh, wow, what's that song about? What's that sound about? Why is it called that? What's up with this album art? And now they click over and now they're reading about it. And um, it's working. You know, it's really been amazing to see the amount of traffic uh, and attention that the stories are getting through the music. And then some of the streaming revenue comes back to the nonprofit journalism outlet, which bolsters our ability to produce what is really a really you know expensive form of journalism. So that's another benefit. Wow, that's awesome. And I love getting to hear about that. Definitely how it grew. You know, you thought it was going to be this small thing and now you have over 400 artists. That's incredible. Unfortunately, we're getting close on time. But before we close, I want to acknowledge that you were slated to speak at the 2020 McGill Lecture at UGA, which is an annual gathering to honor the late editor Ralph McGill. And it celebrates courage in journalism. And unfortunately, that didn't happen because of COVID-19. But you've certainly embarked on a career that requires courage, whether that's traveling on ships in international waters or you know, going out on a limb and starting your own nonprofit journalism organization. So what does it mean to you to have courage specifically as a journalist? I mean, it's one of those hard questions that I don't know, I, I struggle to answer because I don't think of myself in those terms, quite frankly. Um, it's not because I'm being hum humble here. It's because I genuinely I think I'm surrounded by other forms of what I believe are even more intense courage that um, inspires me to mimic them. I come from a very endowed position, right? So I am a Western, well, financially well-off, well-educated, American passport-carrying journalist with a New York Times name brand behind them. So I fly into a place like Thailand. I get on a ship that is dangerous and and awful and and scary in many ways and when i think of that i don't think of wow it took me a lot of courage because in all likelihood nothing bad is going to happen to me i might slip and fall but no one's going to do harm to me most likely um, because of all those advantages i carry with me the the 40 cambodian deckhands who are ranging from 14 to 25 most of whom are invisible people their documents have been taken away they were illegally trafficked they don't exist you know on the government radar they have none of those amenities that i described those folks show incredible courage in talking to me you know and in just essentially surviving the experience and so i'm kind of more fixated on the courage that the sources I talk to have and the trust they show in letting me tell their story. I kind of am just a, a conduit. Uh, and so I don't know that it's so courageous, quite frankly, but um, I appreciate the compliment nonetheless. And I, I think I would define it probably in those terms. Thanks for tuning into The Lead for the final episode of season nine. I've had a blast hosting these conversations, appreciate you listening, and hope you'll keep tuning in for season 10 next semester. This episode was produced with guidance from Charlotte Norsworthy, executive producer of The Lead as part of her graduate assistantship with the Cox Institute. To make sure you keep up with the start of season 10, subscribe to The Lead on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at The Lead Podcast. Until next time.